Let's turn with you now in the Old Testament to Exodus chapter 12. Exodus chapter 12, beginning in verse 29. And it came to pass at midnight that the Lord struck all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of livestock. So Pharaoh rose in the night, he, all his servants, and all the Egyptians, And there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where there was not one dead. Then he called for Moses and Aaron by night and said, Rise, go out from among my people, both you and the children of Israel, and go serve the Lord as you have said. Also take your flocks and your herds, as you have said, and be gone, and bless me also. And the Egyptians urged the people that they might send them out of the land in haste, For they said, We shall all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, having their kneading bowls bound up in their clothes on their shoulders. Now the children of Israel had done according to the word of Moses, and they had asked from the Egyptians articles of silver, articles of gold, and clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, so that they granted them what they requested. Thus they plundered the Egyptians." When the children of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Succoth, about 600,000 men on foot besides children, a mixed multitude went up with them also, and flocks and herds, a great deal of livestock. And they baked unleavened cakes of the dough which they had brought out of Egypt, for it was not leavened, because they were driven out of Egypt and could not wait, nor had they prepared provision for themselves." Now the sojourn of the children of Israel who lived in Egypt was 430 years. It came to pass at the end of the 430 years. On that very same day it came to pass that all the armies of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. It is a night of solemn observance to the Lord for bringing them out of the land of Egypt. This is that night of the Lord, a solemn observance for all the children of Israel throughout their generations. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, This is the ordinance of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat it. But every man's servant who is bought for money, when you have circumcised him, then he may eat it. A sojourner and a hired servant shall not eat it. In one house it shall be eaten. You shall not carry any of the flesh outside the house, nor shall you break one of its bones. All the congregation of Israel shall keep it. And when a stranger dwells with you and wants to keep the Passover to the Lord, Let all his males be circumcised, and then let him come near and keep it, and he shall be as a native of the land. For no uncircumcised person shall eat it. One law shall be for the native-born and for the stranger who dwells among you. Thus all the children of Israel did as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. And it came to pass on that very same day that the Lord brought the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt according to their armies. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, this is indeed your word. This is indeed the high point of this book of Exodus. And the things in it should be plain to us, but Lord, they remain opaque. The implications and the entailments and the applications of these things should should be as clear as day. But Lord, much darkness remains in our hearts and minds. How we pray, Lord, we who are simple, we who are your children, 
and immature in every sort of way, we ask that you would open our eyes and what is more, our hearts, to receive the good things that you have for us, even in this tenth and most dreadful of the plagues, that we might truly learn of you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, so we are in this great chapter, the great climax, the high point of the book of Exodus, perhaps of the entire Old Testament. And in this chapter, we first considered the Passover lamb himself, of course, clearly pointing us to the Lord Jesus Christ, particularly in his work of justification, his shed broken body and shed blood that we might be forgiven our sins and and received as righteous in the sight of God. But also then of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, these two twin aspects of salvation tied together in this single chapter and tied together completely in, yes, the Lord Jesus Christ and his gracious, gracious work of salvation. And not only are we saved from the penalty of sin, but we are saved from sin itself, its, its presence, as the leaven of sin is driven out from us in the work of God's grace and sanctification. But we've not actually discussed, although it's come up many times, but we've not actually discussed this tenth plague, the final and the worst of the plagues, the death of the firstborn. But that is our business tonight. The Lord explains what he is going to do in verse 12. He's already done so, of course. But in verse 12, he says, For I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night, and will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. And of course, the Passover was, in some sense, we know what it stands for in the larger picture. We know it is a picture of, the, of Christ and his sacrifice. It's really a visible gospel. And so it was for all the people of the Old Testament as they, they had this Uh, this sacrament as they observed this part of the ceremonial law year by year. It was precisely a picture of these things. But at the moment, it was an expedient. It was for the purpose of enduring. It was for the purpose of being, uh, surviving the night that was before them, this night in which the angel of death was going to pass through all the land, and he was going to put to death the firstborn in every household. And this blood shall be a sign for you in the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And this plague shall not be on you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So it was an instrument to survive this terrible, terrible plague. And this plague was also to bring judgment upon this particular sinner, Pharaoh, and all of his sinful people, the people of Egypt. It was to do that as well. The Lord had promised that he was going to do such, and the Lord is going to do it. But let me say, beyond it, it was to secure the victory and the salvation of his people. Friends, I I know that there are some things that I repeat more than once. But I'm going to say this again, not for the last time, that there is no salvation apart from judgment. If you've not already understood that, I want you to understand it now. There is no salvation apart from judgment. The Word of God knows nothing of such an event. And we ourselves, we can think as we wish, but once this world fell into darkness, once Adam ate of the fruit, he was commanded not to, and died spiritually, and all of his people along with us, and that sin imputed to us, and, and its corruption. There is only one way now, and that is that every act of salvation 
is predicated on an act of judgment. And so it is here. God's people are enslaved. They are helpless, enslaved in this land of Egypt against their will. And there is no way that they're ever going to get out unless the Lord judges the one who is holding them captive, Pharaoh. And that is precisely what he is now doing. And friends, we have to understand, as awful as this plague is, and truly it is awful, too awful to contemplate, the Lord declares it because it is our salvation. The tenth plague, the death of the firstborn, that's our title. And there are three points. The Lord strikes, Pharaoh concedes, and the people freed. The Lord strikes, Pharaoh concedes, the people freed. Well, the Lord strikes. Verse 29, it came to pass at midnight that the Lord struck all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. And I want us to see again an element that maybe I've mentioned, I don't know. But this is to say that this is the Lord's own work. He's not distancing himself. Moses makes no attempt whatsoever to distance himself or to distance the Lord from this work of judgment. As if that the only reason why this has come upon them is that... that for a moment, the Lord has turned his attention to other things and, and some terrible accident, all the firstborn of Egypt happened to die. Not at all. Actually, even though he is using the instrument of the angel, uh, this, is, this is dismissed as an unimportant detail. Rather, what it says is that the Lord struck all the firstborn in the land of Egypt because he is the one behind this and he is the one precisely carrying out this work of judgment. I say this only because in our day we have no stomach for the wrath of God. Friends, I have no stomach for the wrath of God, but it's what the word of God declares. This is the truth of God. This is the situation. Our God does carry out his wrathful judgment upon sinners, and he does it personally. Is that, and if that's frightening, it ought to be. Our, our God is not like the picture that the liberals have been trying to make it forever. Uh, Satan is feeding them these lies, by the way. All right? Satan is, is constantly, now he knows good and well what the Lord is actually like, but he goes around telling people, don't worry, he'll look the other way. And, and if he does meet out some sort of judgment, it's not going to be anywhere near as bad as you think it is. But we have to understand that when the Lord, he is gracious, he is merciful, he is long-suffering, very, very slow to wrath. But when that day comes... He does it, and he does it very personally. Well, what exactly does he do here? Well, he strikes from the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sat on his throne, to the firstborn of the captive, who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock. Well, this is a categorical, this is a comprehensive work, not merely just Pharaoh's own firstborn, which was terrible enough, but of every last other person of of Egypt and not even citizens, even the, the captives who are in the dungeon. That's, by the way, the situation of the children of Israel themselves. They were captives in Pharaoh's dungeon. For those who are not Israelites, those who did not believe the word of God, they too, their firstborn, was, they were going to die this very night, every last one of them. Now I want us to say, we contemplate just how terrible a thing it is, that all the firstborn of the land should be slain, that very night, we have to see that it was just. Our God is just, and this action was eminently just. Do you understand? Do you remember what was said in Exodus chapter 1? 
Do you understand the murderous intent of Pharaoh and his people? It wasn't just Pharaoh. Pharaoh gave the command, but look, in Exodus 1.22, Pharaoh commanded all his people, saying, Every son who is born you shall cast into the river, and every daughter you shall save alive. And we know that the people, many, many of them were obedient. This whole land partook of that great and wicked sin of murdering the children of Israel. And so Matthew Henry says, They had slain the Hebrews' children, and now God slew theirs. It was eminently and perfectly just for such a people. And furthermore, the Lord had given ample warning. This was, after all, not the first plague, or the second, or the third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth. It was the tenth plague. God had given fair warning. And understand that in accordance with mercy is how much warning that one gives. Uh, in the Marine Corps, we were specifically taught never to, sh- to, to fire a warning shot. That, pe- that our enemies would understand that the first time we raised our weapons would be in anger and in deadly force. But the Navy fires warning shots. They don't fire many. And typically, there is one shot over the bow of an enemy war- warship, and the next one is going to be at their engine room, is going to be at their control center, is going to be at their ordnance locker, and that will be the end of it. Friends, the Lord had given one warning shot, and a second, and a third, and a fourth, and a fifth, and a sixth, and a seventh, and an eighth, and a ninth, to the very limit, indeed, at the, the danger of allowing his enemies to think that he was an utter softy, and he never would carry out this final stroke. He was willing indeed, because of his long-suffering, because of his mercy and his grace, he gave all of those warning shots, and finally the day had come. So, friends, it was, after many, much fair and ample warning, it was perfectly just. It was certainly in accordance with his own word and in accordance with his nature as the just lawgiver. So the Lord certainly struck them. And secondly, we see that Pharaoh concedes. In verse 30, so Pharaoh rose in the night, he, all of his servants, and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where there was not one dead. We tend to focus, you know, on those who had babies at this time, and no doubt that was particularly horrific. But no, the plague was upon everyone. And whatever household that you come, there was going to be some firstborn. Somewhere in a household of one kind or another, there was going to be firstborn. And in that household, that firstborn was going to be dead, whatever the age. And so that there was none exempted. And we're reminded the totality of it even extended to the livestock. But what a fearsome thought. You know, here is darkness is around us and the hours passed, you know, there's it's no surprise that the world celebrates darkness. I mentioned at a recent Bible study why it is that people go out to carouse at night because they think that darkness cloaks their sin. And it is no surprise in that the world celebrates their pagan holiday in darkness. It is a celebration of wickedness and, and so forth. But, of course, people are naturally frightened in the darkness. Imagine them. In the middle of the night, as one after another household wakes up in horror to see, indeed, their worst nightmare had come true, their firstborn was dead, and that another household 
and you hear their, their, their cries and their screams, and one after another of these around you, and the whole land erupting in this cry in the middle of the night, dreadful beyond all conception. And friends, again, when we consider these things, we do so with, with fear, we do so with tears. Yes, these people were wicked, and yes, they were enemies of the Lord, but as fellow sinners, we do have some sympathy, don't we? Because we recognize that even we ourselves, in justice, we would be worthy of such treatment at the hands of a holy God. But all of this, let me say, is because of one man's hellish pride. You understand, again, the Lord's long-suffering and all the many warnings that he'd given. And you see this great cry, this great lament rising up in the, the night, such a fearsome cry, and it is because of this man's pride. All Pharaoh had to do at any point is relent. All he had to do was to give in, and he would not. Do you see how terrible that pride is that he would cause such suffering to his people? How dreadful, friends. And I want you to see, yes, there are many lessons to be learned from this particular sermon, but I want you to understand just how terrible is the end of pride and how necessary it is that if if, if you are holding your fist up against the Lord and you are refusing to bow the knee, whether in terms of salvation as a whole, still opposing him, unwilling to repent and be saved, or whether it is some sin that you're holding out, you have to understand what the end of pride is for yourself and for those around you. And yes, as a whole church, you see. Because God deals with us as his covenant people. God dealt with the people of, of Egypt as under their covenant head, Pharaoh. And he, is in, in his pride, led them to destruction. Now we pray that the Lord would have mercy on us and humble our pride and keep us from these things. Keep me from such things, lest we all suffer together. Well, in verse 31, he does surrender. He called for Moses and Aaron by night. He had just said, I'll never see your face again. He tells him to get out of his face Tells them to get out of his palace. He never wants to see them again. And now he is urging them to come in the middle of the night. Rise, go out from among my people, both you and the children of Israel. Go and serve the Lord as you have said. And also take your flocks and your herds, as you have said, just emphasizing all the things that you asked for, he's granting. Pharaoh had relented before, but always with qualifications, always with conditions. He was not an unconditional surrender. He said, okay, fine. You've forced my hand. I will let you go, but only the men, not the women and children. Okay, the women and children too, but not the livestock and herds. But now, that's all gone. He is very specifically saying all of it. He's not even waiting for Moses to have to ask the question or to come back to him and say, you, you understand we're taking everything? No, he, he says it from his own lips. The Lord had wrested this great victory from even the lips of his enemy and the, condition, the surrender was unconditional. And be gone, he says. Imperative, command, no mere permission. Remember again, Pharaoh had called Moses in the very middle of the night, and he is urging them to depart immediately. This is exactly what the Lord had foretold in Exodus 6. It seems so unlikely to Pharaoh, it, or to, to Moses and to the people. It seems so unlikely at the beginning of these things, when Pharaoh in his pride and his power lifted up, and when the, things, when the plagues began, it seemed like this was hopeless. 
this thing that was prophesied in Exodus 6.1. Then the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will let them go, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. That's exactly what he did. He had a strong hand, and he used that strong hand so that they would be actually driven out of the land. But again, it's not just Pharaoh. It's not just Pharaoh saying, please leave. In fact, go now with everything that you have. But it's the people as well, because in verse 33, the Egyptians, the people urged the people of Israel that they might send them out of the land in haste, for they said, we shall all be dead. You see how it's going. They have seen how the Lord's plagues have continued on in their severity and this worst of them. They shall all soon be dead. They know it. And they, friends, take the warning of the Lord very seriously. Oh, if only that were the case with those people in our lives, the people that we love, our neighbors, our loved ones, our friends, our co-workers. Oh, if only they would be like them. They would, you know, the, the people of Egypt at that point, they trembled at the word of God. They trembled even at the presence of these people, knowing that the Lord's presence was with them, knowing that at Moses' word, they, Moses could either intercede for their behalf and make the plagues apart, or he could speak a word and, the, and they would all be destroyed. And they knew that. And they were asking. They, they took that warning very, very seriously. And they wanted them to depart from their midst. We shall all be dead. And the people, so that's what the people say. Now, Pharaoh, I haven't even mentioned the most remarkable thing that Pharaoh said, which is, and bless me also. This great enemy, this enemy of Moses, said, you'll never see my face again. Get out of here. Now he's saying, bless me. Bless me. Friends, don't ever forget that we do not war against flesh and blood The nature of our battle is spiritual. And that God can, in his power, make even our most sworn enemy come to us and ask that we intercede on their behalf. Stranger things have happened. And here Pharaoh, in his humiliation, as his arms have been utterly broken, his will broken, at least for the moment. We see his pride will have a resurgence yet. He says, Pray for me. Bless me also. Well, Pharaoh rightly understood that even this was not as bad as it could be. He himself had been spared, at least for the moment. It's an amazing thing to me that Pharaoh was even spared another day. But he rightly asked Moses to intercede for him. Moses is the intercessor, pointing us again to Christ. Everywhere we look in this, we see Christ. Where There's Christ in the Lamb. There's Christ in the unleavened bread. There is Christ as the angel going around and carrying out this destruction. He's the judge as well as the Savior. And there's Christ even in Moses. Moses himself, a picture of the intercessor, the leader of God's people. Yes, he has the power to intercede even for great enemies. Well, the Lord strikes. Pharaoh concedes. And the result of that is, thirdly, the people are freed. In verse 31, it came to pass. Sorry, verse 51, the very last verse here. And it came to pass on that very day that the Lord brought the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt according to their armies. Just like he said on that very same day. 
You know, we think of the time passing. The year is passing and the situation is getting worse. The, the Pharaoh who did not know Joseph came to the throne. And the storm clouds continue to gather. And one thing leads to a next. And then there's this murderous plot against the children of Israel. First with the midwives. And then he gives the general order to all of his people to kill their male children. And then the bondage, the cruel bondage and labor, it's worse and worse and worse. And the years and the decades and indeed the centuries pass. 430 years. But then it's done in the midst of a single day. The unbeliever looks at these things and he says, judgment will never come. This judgment that the, the Lord has said, he said he's going to judge this whole world and it's all going to be a great conflagration. The world has continued on. And I, as a wicked person, as a sinner, I've gotten away with it. I've been able to scoff at God and his word. I've been able to sin as much as I want. I've even oppressed God's people and nothing has happened to me. So says the scoffer. So said Pharaoh. But then the day came and in a single day, God carried out judgment And God carried out salvation for his people. Now, again, as we see, there will be yet a further judgment on Pharaoh and his his people, his army. But we see that in a single day, the Lord brought the children of Israel out of the land according to their armies. This is why they had the Passover. This is why they had the unleavened bread. This is why they ate it with their loins girded and with a staff in their hand. Because they were to be ready to leave that very night. Well, let me say, again, Pharaoh and his pride will reconsider. He'll go after them with his army. After that, there'll be the pagan nations of Canaan that they'll have to oppose and fight. And really, you know what? Sadly, the great enemy we're going to find is the people themselves. When they make that golden calf, when they refuse in their wicked rebellion to enter into the land of Canaan, And yes, even their perverse desire to return to Egypt, it makes no sense. It's the most bizarre thing imaginable. That these people who have been saved, these people who have been set free, these people who were slaves, about to die, hated by the, the Egyptians, and forced to live on, on nothing, yet they want to return to Egypt. Bizarre. Bizarre. But for the moment... Friends, they were free. They were free. And we should think about that. Because this is the nature of our salvation. It is secured by the Lord defeating his and our enemies and in setting us free. Right? The people are slaves. And you know what? That's what the Lord Jesus, how he described our situation. It's not the only way to look at our salvation. Okay? It's not the only way to look at our predicament. But it is certainly one of the very important ways to look at our human situation as enslaved. Jesus answered them. This is in John chapter 8. You know these these Pharisees were unwilling to concede the depth of their depravity. Unwilling to concede just how bad their situation was. They were almost like Pharaohs sometimes, shaking their fist at the Lord Jesus. But in John 8, 34, Jesus answered them, Most assuredly, I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. And a slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides forever. Therefore, if the son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. They're saying, this was in response to their protest, we're not slaves. Oh, yes, you are. Friends, if you 
do not have Christ, if he is not your leader, if you have not embraced him in faith, you are in fact a slave. That's what it says. I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. And yes, a slave of the one who has led you into sin. Ultimately, Satan himself. You are his drudge, his slave. But on the other hand, if the Son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. Now, we don't know exactly what happened that night. We know in some sense the celebration had to wait as they were leaving in haste. But what a thought. At long last that they were free. You know, we have these situations, don't we, in recent church history, even in past church history. All of a sudden, the prayers of God's people have been answered, and somebody who's been in prison for the word of God, the door is opened. The sound of the door opening. So maybe even at midnight. So even as God's judgment falls on his enemies in the middle of the night, sometimes his salvation falls upon his people, comes to his people, and he frees them. Their shackles fall off, and like Peter, they walk right out of the prison. Physically, yes, sometimes, but spiritually for every one of us who comes to Christ, we who are utterly slaves are set free. And if the Son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. What a beautiful, lovely freedom secured at great cost for you. The death, yes, of the enemies of God. He has to kill them in order. He has to judge them in order that you might be saved. But moreover, of his own son. And friends, we cannot forget that, can we? That's why I read in the New Testament. That's why I read from the Gospel of John. Because it wasn't the only firstborn, you see, to secure our salvation, to secure our freedom. It wasn't just sufficient, ultimately, that Pharaoh's firstborn could die and that would be enough. Or the... His servants, firstborn, could die, and that would be enough. It wasn't enough. That was the whole point of there being the Passover, pointing to that innocent lamb that needed to die. That had to happen. Somebody else's firstborn was going to have to die. And it was God's himself. He sent Lord Jesus Christ to be that lamb, to be that Passover lamb, to die in order that we might live, to secure our freedom. What a blessed freedom it is. Now, I have some applications. The first one is that you ought to heed the warning. Heed the warning that God gives. You know, many times the Lord declares that he is slow to anger. That is part of his solemn, holy name. As he declares his character to us, he says he is slow to anger. But he will eventually carry out his judgments He will demonstrate that his warnings are not in vain. The wicked world doesn't listen. Pharaoh didn't listen. But friends, please listen. As the Lord gives his warnings, what he says he will do. If he says that he is going to judge the wicked eternally in hell, he will surely do it. Those who have sinned the least sin, but certainly those also who have sinned the greatest of sin, and everything in between. And, you know, the, the, the people of this world always imagine, they, you know, the idea that there is a God and there is a law and that they will be judged. All those things are written in their hearts. They can't escape it. The only thing that they can do is to imagine that it applies to someone else. 
They compare themselves on favorable terms with everyone else around the world, even a small select group of people, and say that somebody's worse than me. And that, that's the sort of person that God is going to judge, and I'm going to go free. Well, they're kidding themselves. The Lord's warning is not that I will judge some sinners, the very worst of them. The Lord's warning is that I will judge all sinners, every last one of them. And even as he brought judgment that day from the greatest to the least, from the one most directly responsible Pharaoh to the one most distantly related to their covenant head, even the captive of the land, so he will bring to every last sinner. Take the warning seriously because he will execute it entirely. But secondly, we should trust that God is strong enough to save. That's the, that's the wonderful good news here. As I say, we, we completely underestimate the predicament we're in. Not only in the, the, the warning of judgment to come, we underestimate that and we want to push that off onto something else. But we underestimate our own situation. Our enemies are stronger than we think. They are exceedingly strong. The world, the flesh, the devil, these are, these are not minor problems. They are mighty enemies. And in some sense, the people of Israel had it easier than we do because they look at a Pharaoh and they saw he is mighty. He is the, he is the head of the, the world's lone superpower, much, much greater than any of the nations round about. All power seemingly was in his hand. We underestimate the enemies that stand against us. And we should understand just how bad it is because Satan would love for us to imagine that it's not so bad. And therefore to go out on our own, to go forth without the whole armor of God and to imagine that we can stand just like Peter thought that he could stand. But friends, we can't. We can't. Our enemy is just too strong for that. Satan truly is a strong man. That's the way the Lord Jesus himself describes him. But the good news is Christ is a stronger man. As he broke the arm of Pharaoh, as he crushed him eventually under the, the waters of the sea, so he has and he shall crush Satan's head completely. And he is able to uphold us. He is able to keep us. If we have come to him for refuge, we, are, we can have 100% confidence. We can have perfect assurance There's no need for us to struggle with assurance with such a strong man. If he's a weak man, yes. But Christ is no weakling. He is more than strong enough to save you and I and every one of us. And no one can stand against, no one can snatch us out of his hand. I'll keep saying that one as well. From the Gospel of John, we'll never get beyond that. No one can snatch him out of my Father's hand. He says, I and my Father are one. It's a glorious truth. He has done all this in order that you might be saved. Do you understand? He is is able and willing and will certainly defeat all of his enemies. He will slay them before you. And what is more, his son will be slain in order that you'd be saved. And you've got to trust that that's enough. And his provision for you is sufficient. You must trust that God is strong enough to save you. Thirdly, you should rejoice in your freedom. We think of festivals sometimes, and there are festivals which celebrate deliverances, as indeed Guy Fawkes Night. It is a deliverance, indeed, from a Roman Catholic plot to destroy this 
Protestant Christian nation. And we rejoice. And we have our fireworks and we have our celebrations because we are thankful to God for these things. And we have, in America, there's also a celebration. And it has to do with freedom. Now, we can debate the politics of it. But the reality is that people all around the world will rejoice at any element of freedom they can possibly find. And and if, if a nation's freedom from enslavement... A nation, there ought to be a day particularly to to celebrate the the Battle of Britain and our being secured of freedom from Nazi Germany. There ought to be such a a festival that we celebrate. But friends, if these things are worth our celebration, how much more than our spiritual freedom in Christ that we have truly been set free? Rejoice in it. Revel in it. He's done it. And we are free. We're not, we're not slaves anymore. I can look at you and you can look at me as free men, as those who, yes, whatever, ter- however terrible our dungeon may have been, and indeed however mighty our enemies remain, we are free and we walk around in freedom that Christ has secured at the greatest possible price for us. And we should at least rejoice. Let's at least do that much. The Son has made you free. You shall be free indeed. Rejoice in your freedom. Fourthly and finally, we should receive, if we are believers, the Lord's Supper. If we are part of this church, that God has included us, that indeed we have come and are joined to Christ's church in this place, and we should certainly receive the Lord's Supper, that he has provided for us. As that was the belated application from this morning, wasn't it? Even as the Lord sent his disciples, his two most trusted, his most important, his closest disciples, he goes on, sends them on an important little mission so that he could sit down and celebrate the, the last of the Passovers and the first Lord's Supper with them. So he has made provision for you and this night In 2016, all these years later, my friends, he had made the plans from all eternity that we would have this fellowship with him this night. This is his providence. This is his care. This is his love in in every minute detail for his beloved people. You understand, people rightly interpret that people care for them when they think things out and make some great provision for them. Maybe in some little gift here or there, that maybe some details are there, something that is cooked in just the right sort of way, presented in just the right sort of way, some, some trip, in particular details that have been thought about. This is our God. He has thought about these details. This is his provision for his people. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we truly rejoice in the great victory that was accomplished that night. Pharaoh, from his own lips, had to admit his defeat. He had to make this unconditional surrender. Indeed, he was asking for blessing from the one intercessor at that time, Moses. And Heavenly Father, the people were then free. Lord, we know that there was rejoicing And Heavenly Father, how we pray that there would be rejoicing even among ourselves. 
as we believe truly that your provision is sufficient, that the strong man that you sent, he is strong enough to save us all. And as terrible as our enemies are, and they are terrible, Lord, no one is strong enough to wrest us from his hand. And so, Lord, we greatly rejoice in his salvation, in the freedom that he's given to us. We pray never to misuse it, but rather to use it to the hilt, the freedom that he's given to live in accordance with your law, in accordance with this great commission that we are given, in accordance with the great command that we should love one another, that we should rejoice evermore with all these wonderful things, and we should worship the triune God. We pray that we would indeed revel in these things. And Lord, we pray your blessing upon us as we turn to this great picture of it all, the Lord's Supper. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.